Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Hi, welcome to Hollywood Crime Scene. This is Rachel Fisher. Hi, this is Desi Jedekin. Shall we start out by thanking our Patreon contributors? Yeah. Can you hand me my phone? Sure. I forgot I put it over there. I was wondering why you're being so slow about it. <laughs> Should we? <laughs> These uh, lovely people donated over at patreon.com slash Hollywood Crime Scene. This week we had Michelle, William, Lynn, Lisa, Jamie, Karina, Brandy, Farah, John, Ashley, James, Emily, Emma, Janelle, Sarah, Rendy, Christina, Jennifer, Sarah, and Eleanor. Thanks, guys. And we Thank have you. episodes coming this week that will be loaded up on Patreon. Yes, we do. So we can look for those. But today, I'm going to bring you the story of Carrie Fisher, who is actually someone I really like. Do you like Carrie Fisher? Oh, who doesn't? Uh, yeah. So I have to say and confess up top that I did not become a fan of hers from Star Wars. <laughs> Like I did know who she was from that, but I really started liking her when she started writing books and those books, or at least one of them got made into a movie. And she was also like on talk shows a lot. So I would see her on talk shows and that's where I really became a fan of hers. I definitely relate to her in many ways as I'm sure Rachel does. So I'm excited to get into her life. So the book I used is called Carrie Fisher, A Life on the Edge by Sheila Weller, but I also poked into her books as well, and I'll mention that throughout. So let's get into it. Carrie Frances Fisher was born October 21st, 1956 in Burbank, California. She started off her life in the flats of Beverly Hills, where she had neighbors like Loretta Young, Lana Turner, and Danny Thomas, most famous (laughs) for eggs Danny Thomas style. Holy shit. (laughs) What year was this? 1956. So, Well, my dad lived in the flats of Beverly Hills in the 50s. Oh, really? Yes, with my grandmother. Oh, interesting. So he's in this neighborhood as well. Maybe. Now, as Carrie puts it in her one-woman show, Wishful Drinking, I came from simple folk, people of the land. That was her opening line. Now, those simple folk that she came from were specifically actress Debbie Reynolds and singer Eddie Fisher, her Beth, I'm sorry, her birth set off her dramatic life. She was born three weeks early and her parents were in Palm Springs when Debbie went into labor. So they actually rushed home from Palm Springs to a hospital in Burbank to have the baby there. Can you imagine taking that drive when you're in labor? Oh my God. Now her birth was actually really big news. This was Hollywood's most wholesome couple and they had just had their first uh, baby girl. So, I mean, her birth announcement was in the New York Times. So she's pretty much famous from the day she's born. 
So just a little background on her parents who couldn't have come from more different places. Eddie was from Philly and he was what his dad described as culturally Jewish. They didn't really practice religion, but obviously, as you know, it's still a big part of your life. Was he cult- Was he ethnically Jewish? He was Jewish, but they were just culturally Jewish. They didn't practice the religion. That's basically so what So like my family. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was, that's what I just said. So... Debbie was from Texas and she was raised Nazarene Baptist, which is very strict, like don't dance, don't anything, that kind of stuff. Um, But one thing they did have in common was that they were both from dirt poor, depression era childhoods, and that kind of bonded them. They also both used their talent to make it big and eventually became pretty rich and famous. Now, Debbie hit it big in Singing in the Rain and pretty much became America's sweetheart before I took over the mantle, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I used to do rehearsal for shows I was in at the Debbie Reynolds Dance Studio in in the Valley. Well, she did a lot of money making things later in life. We'll get into that. <laughs> I mean, this was like a look. This was not like a huge swanky place. It was like she a put very, her name on anything, Rachel. This, this was a very <laughs> basic dance studio, very humble, I should say. Yes. Now Eddie was a crooner. He was a very boyish crooner. He traveled the country with his band, and he also had a popular show called Coke Time with Eddie Fisher, <laughs> which is not as cool hey. as it sounds. <laughs> My show's called Coke Time with Rachel Fisher, and it's not about cola. <laughs> now, Eddie was a bit of a wild one. He was an OG fuckboy, very charming, and an early patient of Hollywood's infamous Dr. Feelgood, Max Jacobson. Jacobson would give stars energy-boosting hormone shots that were also full of a secret ingredient. Speed. <laughs> Methamphetamine. Now, Eddie said after this uh, period quote, those of us who believed in Max didn't understand the danger. And once we understood it, we didn't believe it. Once we believed it, we didn't care. <laughs> <laughs> so that's some kind of like the, the seven stages of grief. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Eddie also would go on manic buying sprees because in addition to being an addict, he also lived with undiagnosed bipolar disorder for much of his life. Carrie would inherit his addiction and his bipolar disorder. Debbie would blame Eddie for Carrie's struggles later on in life. Now, almost from the start, Carrie was the star of these celebrity profiles that were done on the couple. And the reason for that was that the couple, almost from the start, were combating gossip that there was trouble in paradise. So they were always kind of like, see how perfect we are with our little perfect family, and here's our really cute little baby. Now, in 1957... Eddie Fisher's best friend was a film producer named Mike Todd. He had begun an affair with Debbie's old MGM schoolmate, Elizabeth Taylor. Todd is described in the book as having a tough Jew sex appeal, which I don't quite know what that is, but I'm into it for some reason. That's your type. I Googled Mike Todd and I was like, yeah, I would have gone with Mike Todd easily. Now, <laughs> look for anyone who does. For anyone who doesn't know, Desi is Desi is the shiksa who is obsessed with Jewish men. No, when I he when she said tough Jew sex appeal, my ears perked. Up. <laughs> I was like, "What's that?" Because <laughs> you could go for soft and quiet, like a Jewish guy, like an Elliot Gould, but he has a, a little inner toughness. Yeah. Now this guy. You can just tell from the pictures, he has a big personality. He is a gambler. He's a man about town. He has like the confidence. He's a self-made rich guy. 
Liz had been married to two pretty wimpy guys before this, and she fell hard for Mike Todd, who absolutely dominated her. This is a big topic of conversation in the book, how much this guy dominated Liz Taylor, which you can imagine felt great for Liz Taylor, who had been fond over her whole fucking life, and finally this guy is there who's treating her like a piece of shit. How in a way? Wait, you're saying this is great for Liz Taylor? No, I'm saying that I can see why she found it exciting. Right. she's really young. You know, she's probably like in her early 20s at this point. Now, Debbie would clutch her pearls when Mike, they would be at dinner parties and Mike Todd would talk about fucking Liz, like in front of mixed company, like as Debbie Reynolds put it. He would even talk about like kind of shoving her around and that she loved it. I mean, they had a volatile relationship. Now, Liz got pregnant by Mike Todd while she was still married to her husband at the time. So she basically was like, I'll give you the house. Just give me a quickie divorce. Uh, They got divorced quickly and she married Mike Todd like instantly with Eddie as the best man and Debbie as the maid of honor. Now this was in 1957. And by the end of the year, their baby Liza Todd was born shortly after that. Debbie was pregnant again, this time with a boy. He would be born on February 4th, 1958 and was named Todd after Mike Todd, despite the fact that in the Jewish religion, they forbid naming a baby after a living person, believing that it brings bad luck. I was named after a recently deceased person. Right, that's okay. That's, that's but that's Jets common. Yes, in yes. Yeah. Uh, well, the bad luck happened. Less than a month and a half later, Mike Todd died in a private plane crash. <gasps> yeah, isn't that crazy? That's creepy. Yeah, Eddie was there to console his widow from day one. Now, rumors quickly started swirling that he was doing more than consoling the widow. widow and rumors of Elizabeth and Eddie Fisher hooking up began to swirl. Debbie laid on the perfect family shtick for the celeb mags even harder, and she was kind of in denial about it, I guess. Now, at some point that's next summer, Elizabeth and Eddie both happened to be in New York City together. Debbie was stuck at home with a newborn baby and her toddler, Carrie, but she had finally had enough of all the shit-talking and stuff she was hearing, like the whispering. She tries to call Liz's room at the Plaza Hotel one night, and there's no answer. She next calls, pretending to be Dean Martin's secretary, trying to reach Eddie Fisher. The call goes through, and Eddie picks up the phone in Liz's <gasps> room. It's the middle of the night, by the way, so there's no reason for him to be there. Yeah. When he realized it was a Debbie, he said, quote, Oh, shit. <laughs> What else are you going to say in that situation? (laughs) Now, Debbie wanted to keep the marriage together still, um, but Eddie was madly in love with Elizabeth Taylor. Debbie, like, went so far as to tell him, you fucking idiot, you were not her type. Like, it was clearly just her mourning the death of her husband, and he was there. Uh, But it was not. I mean, she next goes with Richard Burton, so Eddie was just definitely the safe place for her. Now they do go to couples therapy, but it doesn't work. And they finally announced their separation. Debbie, I'm sorry, Debbie quickly became the perfect wife and mother who was wronged by her slutty BFF. This was a really big scandal in Hollywood at the time. Like it was like unheard of that a big star would openly steal another star's husband like this. I mean, it would be a big story nowadays, uh, yeah. but back then it was just crazy. Well, you remember that whole Leanne Rhymes oh, right. triangle that yeah, happened? Yeah, yeah. With Brandy. <laughs> yeah. That was like, what, 10 years ago, probably. Yeah, it was. I think they're still married, too. What was his Eddie Cibrian? Yeah, Eddie Cibrian. <laughs> I don't even know what the, I don't even know what that guy's famous for. I feel like he was like in 
Baywatch or something. Probably not, but something similar. Like, but, but that story was in the tabloids. It felt like for fucking two years straight. Right. You could not get away. And they from weren't that. even huge stars except for Leanne Rhymes. Right. Uh, so. This was big. Yeah. Now paparazzi are stalking them nonstop, trying to get pictures. And Eddie's being a real shithead about everything. He's pretty much not seeing the kids. He's not paying child support, which Debbie milked for all it was worth. Like she definitely was like played the victim card pretty, pretty hot, pretty hard. Now Liz and Eddie get married. She converts to Judaism to marry him. And that happens in May of 1959. They go off to Europe, basically, and he lives his like family life behind. He's like living it up in Europe with Liz Taylor. Now the celeb magazine started running sort of like sad divorce celebrity stories about how excited Carrie was when her dad called. And that would be Aww. like a pictorial. like So an excerpt from the book... Um, they would run stories about Eddie calling her from England and they would include photographs showing Carrie being excited, sitting by the phone, waiting for him to um, call her. And then she would also ask for him to fly back to see her. Uh, and he would say, no, not today, baby. Um, and she would tell him what her brother was doing, saying things like, he eats cereal. He walks now, daddy, like telling him, like, cause he wasn't seeing his fucking kids. And this was ran as like, a charming celebrity anecdote. Like, look at this, like his little kids wanting to see him. <laughs> it's just such a wildly different, um, like, I feel like this would never fly today. It would be, people would be like, what the fuck, dude? Well, I mean, we do have those quote unquote heartwarming stories about some poor 80 year old woman that has to walk to the, that's true to walk back and forth in the snow to her minimum wage job. Yeah. And then the, <laughs> the fake heartwarming aspect that goes viral is like, her boss, you know, bought her a bus ticket one day. And it's like, this isn't heartwarming. This is horrible. But Carrie was very affected by this divorce. And she always was searching for her parents' love. And they're both like, let's be honest, huge narcissists who are in their own careers and playing these games with each other. And the kids are, they love them, but they're just not the priority. I mean, it would be really like... I feel like that would be really traumatic to have your parents divorce and all the intricate details be broadcast to the entire world. Yeah. And like as entertainment. Well, and this was actually, there was like a scandal. It's not just a divorce, right? So Debbie eventually begins dating a man named Harry Carl, who was a wealthy shoe magnet. He was twice her age and apparently very boring. In fact, when he wasn't around at parties, she would often tell people he was out making money. Like that was her excuse why he wasn't there. Now, Carrie speaks a lot about feeling neglected as a child. She says that her mom worked so much that she would often fall asleep on the stairs waiting for her to come home. She also said when uh, Harry finally moved in after they were married, she would sleep on the floor by her mother's side of the bed to be near her. So so sad thinking of that, her and her little blanket on the floor. Now, uh, not only was Debbie a narcissist, she was also exhausted. Like she really was working a ton to like, pay for this family and this lifestyle. She worked nonstop. Like not only was she an actress in movies, but she was doing a ton of club performances because she was a singer and dancer. Like that was her thing. Right. Now, Carrie said that sometimes her mom could not deal with Carrie's neediness and would give her half an adult tranquilizer to calm her down. Whoa. Now, 
Carrie from a very young age had trouble sleeping and described having a lot of noise in her head, according to her brother. So those tranquilizers were probably medicating her as she was in the early struggles with bipolar disorder, because that's something will will carry on for her the rest of her life. This not being able to quiet down. That's uh, also yeah. an, that's also an alcoholism thing too. Right now, Debbie has become an even bigger star at this point, and was definitely the center of attention. But at school, Carrie really was becoming the star attraction, something that she loved and was also the source of a lot of stress for her. According to Harry Carl's niece, a woman named Lynn Pollack, a lot was expected of Carrie. She was supposed to be this really cute, really good Hollywood kid, Hollywood movie star kid. And although the perks came with that, which she took advantage of, so did a lot of pressure and difficulty and anguish. I felt jealous of her and sorry for her at the same time. Carrie was cared for a lot by a nanny and her grandmother um, when Debbie would go off like for these performances and to film movies. Carrie would speak of them and how tough they were. According to her, she was, when I was young, I was raised more by my grandmother and this nanny named Dottie Wolf, who was just like the name makes her sound. They both used to say just awful things to me and my brother. Maxine was especially hard on Debbie when Debbie would come home from these gigs. That's her mom. She would say, why are you still asleep? But Carrie would remember her always nagging Debbie when she had done two shows the night before and she would sleep in in the morning. The mom like did not like this. When my brother was two years old, I remember him saying to my grandmother, do we do anything right? So that's the climate I grew up in. My mother would go away and do a film and we'd stay with those two bitches. (laughs) (laughs) Now, You might remember this from our episode on Marie McDonald, who was Harry Carl's ex-wife. Marie McDonald dies of an overdose, and Harry and Marie had children. Tina, who was close to Carrie's age, comes to live with Debbie and Harry and shares a room with Carrie. Uh, Did you remember that from that episode? Vaguely. Now, this was like a huge fucking thing for Carrie because she kind of felt like she was already struggling to get her mom's attention and now this girl her her same age comes and is competing for Debbie's attention as well and she's coming from an awful situation and is also needy so she described it in wishful thinking Marie ended up overdosing and passing on but now there are three children left what shall we do with them ah let's go send them to Harry Debbie and let's put one of them in Carrie's room so she was like really bitter about this as a nine-year-old girl and it kind of carried with her into adulthood now part of that was because once uh Tina was there like I said before she was constantly um vying for Debbie's attention with Carrie so it really became uh competitive like if uh if um, Carrie wanted to do something, Tina wanted to do it. If Carrie learned a piece on the piano, Tina wanted to learn the piece. So it was just like a typical childhood competition thing, which just added more stress to Carrie's life. As she got older, she did start sort of becoming, uh, coming into like liking more normal things. She became a huge bookworm. She was very into Girl Scouts and like worked her way up through like the brownies and all of the different levels. And she also collected troll dolls. She like didn't collect Barbies and people were like really into her troll doll collection. <laughs> Did you have troll dolls? Uh, I might've, I remember having like the pencils that had the hair. Yeah. I, I don't, I mean, I may have had them, but it, it wasn't like a huge thing. Did you? Yeah. 
I, I mean, I feel like I had a few of them, but it was never like something I really was I don't into. know why I liked them, and I don't even know why they were popular. They were so weird looking. Because that's like a thing that's come back a bunch of times. Like, they go away, and then they become popular again, I think. Because they were like really popular in like the early, mid-90s when I was a kid. And I think they were came out in like the 60s. Like I didn't even know they were that old. Yes. Yeah, they were. 
fun in small doses, but then when friends would be around her longer, they'd be like, okay, take a breath at, at some point, you know, because she couldn't calm herself. Now, two of her lifelong friends from high school were Griffin Dunn and Gavin DeBecker, who is a um, personal like security uh, expert. He wrote the book called Gift of Fear. Did you ever read that book? No, did you? Of course I did. Wait, what? What? That was a really big book that he was on Oprah when I was a kid and I saw him on Oprah and I read that book. It's such a good book. When you I highly recommend it. Of course. <laughs> it's about like how you can protect yourself like to trust your instincts. Oh. And it opened with a really... I'll always remember this story because I immediately got this book like when I saw it on Oprah and it's all about how to train yourself to trust your instincts. Cause especially as women, we're always like, Oh, don't be an idiot. Don't walk across the street from the guy who's scaring you. Cause you don't want to look like you're scared. Do you yeah. know what I mean? Like that kind of stuff. And it was like this woman who went to her apartment and didn't trust the guy, but she didn't want to be rude. So she held the door open for him and he like raped her. It was like this awful story, but it was all about learning how to trust your instincts and not worrying about looking polite and stuff like that. Interesting. It's a really good book and it's pretty popular actually. Uh, so I highly recommend it because everyone who listens to this is probably into that. Kind of <laughs> <thing>. <laughs> Trusting your fear. Jeez. Well, I think that his theory is like fear is there for a reason and you should listen to it. Well, anyway. It is a biological thing. Yes. So now obviously, even though everyone was madly in love with Carrie, she had other ideas about what she looked and acted like. And uh, to say the least, she did not feel like she was attractive at all. She described it, um, her belief that she wasn't beautiful as, I knew with the profound certainty of a 10-year-old that I would not be the beauty that my mother was. I was clumsy looking, intensely awkward, insecure girl. I decided then that I'd better develop something else. If I wasn't going to be pretty, maybe I could be funny or smart. Uh, I mean, obviously this is clearly untrue. (laughs) She is super cute. Uh, and beautiful, I think. And she's also, uh, Star Wars made her a sex symbol too. Yeah. Like I would, I would say that she's considered someone who's hot. Absolutely. And I feel like it's just growing up with a mom who's a movie star who has this particular type of blonde prettiness that Carrie doesn't have, but I mean... I, I actually prefer Carrie's look to her mom's style. Right, like, right. I mean, so yeah, it's it's definitely it seems like an old school feeling that that pretty blonde thing is right. what everyone wanted to be, right? And it's just, I don't think it's the case anymore, although it definitely still exists of in course. some ways. Um, but, but, but beyond that, her mom was like a movie star. So right. that had to be intimidating too. And I don't think it's a bad thing to develop, develop your other traits, <laughs> but she should definitely not think she was not beautiful. Now, around this time, the Harry Carl Debbie Reynolds marriage went into a tailspin. It turned out Harry was a gambling addict and he blew through the $20 million he and Debbie had when they got married, as well as all of the money that Debbie had made from the time they got married. From gambling? Yes. Damn. They also found out that the manicurists he had been hiring were actually sex workers. They caught him because Debbie's son, Todd, set up cameras and filmed Harry being serviced by one of the manicurists. <laughs> but it was not a manicure, Rachel. It was a blowjob. <laughs> wow, I've never heard of a happy ending after a manicure before. Well, they weren't manicures. Well, I know, but... <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, she, you know, 
Debbie was once again burned. She told the kids not to worry about things, but Carrie was livid because she had had a bad feeling about Harry the whole time. So it was sort of like, mom, I knew this was going to happen. But she nailed Harry right away, according to Lynn Pollock. Much later, Carrie would go on the Arsenio Hall show and she would say, I was aware of my mother's bad taste in men at 14. (laughs) This is like one of the things I really related to her. She said Harry was cheating on her and he spent all her money. That was astonishing. I remember Debbie saying, I can tell you because you're the strong one and your brother is the open wound. And I said, no, you've got that completely wrong. But you know, I was the strong one, but maybe my strength was born of weakness. We grow into our expectations. That would become Carrie's mantra. My weakness lies in my, like my strength lies in my weakness. Like that kind of idea that because she's weak, she got this strength. And I feel like it worked for her to an extent. Now, This incident really led to the degradation of Debbie and Carrie's relationship. They were at each other's throat during this divorce period. Debbie recalled in her memoir that Carrie, that she thought it was because Carrie had lost all respect for her. She went on to say, perhaps she was subconsciously pushing Carrie into adulthood so Carrie could save her, which is just so sick. Damn. (laughs) Now, Carrie basically did just that too. At the age of 15, she dropped out of high school to go to New York with her mom so she could kind of be there for her mom as her mom tried to start this journey of leaving Harry and earning back all the money she had lost. And I mean, Debbie was really working her ass off to gain all this thing, but to put your daughter in this caretaker role at the age of 15 is just not good. So... She's in she's in town to be in a Broadway play called Irene, and that would end up being Carrie's first professional acting role. She played like a small part, but something in the book said like one of <laughs> during the play at some point she had to be like at care at Debbie's feet, like looking up at her mother, <laughs> just like this totally degrading thing. Like the role was like my mom, like oh. as the characters, even though she considered herself a writer at this point. Um, obviously pursuing an acting career was a no brainer with her connections and she was talented, uh, but she did not really love performing, even though she could enjoy it at times. She did love partying though. And Carrie was young and hot in New York and would hang out with all the gay guys in the show after performances, which sounds really fun. (laughs) That must've been so much fun. She particularly loved partying at a club called the Continental Baths. Now, that is where Bette Midler got her start. So she would go see Bette Midler when she was in her bathhouse Betty days uh, performing at these bathhouses, which sounds incredible. That's like a dream life, right? Love it. (laughs) Now, Bruce Valanche, who was writing for Bette at the time and met Carrie during these years, he said, I brought Bette to see Irene. That's how I met Carrie. Carrie decided I was okay. A big thing in her book. You have to make the grade with her. That night we became friends. Bette and I went backstage after the show and all of a sudden there was a bucket of Colonel Sanders chicken and Debbie grabbed it and stood by Bette and pointed pointed at both of their faces to the camera and said, if we take this picture, they'll give us free chicken for a month to feed the kids in the show. (laughs) (laughs) Debbie was like always scheming for a buck. Now, Debbie is making $15,000 a week at the time, but she's deep in debt. So she needs every penny. And Carrie, Bruce Valanche says that Carrie was rolling her eyes and saying, my mother is such a hauser, (laughs) 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 which is a Yiddish word for when you squeeze every penny. So Carrie's like, oh, mom. (laughs) (laughs) There's like this other funny story in the book. We're care where they have Thanksgiving dinner and Debbie shows up and she bought 
two turkeys at like a fast food place. I couldn't find the restaurant though. I was like, where do you buy turkey at fast food? But she's like, here's some turkey. Maybe she went to Boston Market. Maybe. I don't know what it was. Yeah, and got like a breast or something. Yeah, it was crazy. So Fisher continues pursuing acting, but in a very lazy way. Uh, She eventually will make her film debut in 1975 as the character Lorna in Shampoo when she was just 17 years old. Now, we both love this movie. Yep. I mean, it's it's an amazing movie. It stars Lee Grant, Warren Beatty, Julie Christie, Goldie Hawn is in it. And she plays a very precocious uh, teenager in the movie. She basically says uh, how she got cast in the role. She, like, went to the set to talk to Warren Beatty. Hold on. We have... We have a visitor. Aww. One of my foster kittens is using the litter box. Hi, Google. Stand by, everybody. Are we going to have to cut this out? It's a pretty long one. Okay. And we're back. Sorry about that. So she's basically, he's like interviewing her for this role, and she's just like, I don't care. Like, she has this, like, I don't care attitude that's genuine. She really doesn't care, and she's not sure if she wants to do it. Of course, Beatty loves this because it's perfect for the role. And she mentions to him at the time that she's a virgin. And that was, and she said, I like being a, the foulest mouth virgin anyone's ever met. <laughs> it was just literally me. Now, not now anymore, but like, I guess I'm a quarantine virgin. <laughs> um, so he hired her. And then, of course, being Warren Beatty, the minute they're filming, he offers to alleviate that burden of virginity to, to her. According oh. to Carol, Carrie, four times uh, he tries. Now, of course, Carrie, eventually in older age, she's like, I, of course, I regret not yielding to those requests. I probably should have done it because it was so random. <laughs> not because it was Warren Beatty. Yeah. Yeah, so she's like, she's like, I'm not even sure if he was wasn't just kidding. Maybe he would have made a bigger play for me. He told everyone on the set that I was a virgin, and Carrie was embarrassed by that. Oh my but God. she also liked the attention. Now, if you don't know the the movie, she basically plays a teenage girl. Um, he's there. To, Warren Beatty's character is there. Um, her mother's not home. They're like in the kitchen, and her iconic line from this is that. At some point, she just randomly says, wanna fuck? <laughs> like, as if it's just expected after hanging out in the kitchen for a bit. It's a very funny moment, even though it's kind of disturbing. Just to hear her say, I mean, such a good line. <laughs> for your film debut to say that line, I think is pretty incredible. Uh, everyone loved it. Lee Grant, who I think won an Academy Award for her role in that movie, she remembered Carrie this way. I was shocked at how ephemeral and beautiful Carrie was and how strong and direct and honest she was. She was only a kid, just 17, but she was so sure of herself in the way she communicated. Her arms and legs and face were so white at a period when everybody else was baking in the sun. Her whole being was the opposite of what a glamour girl was supposed to be in that period, and she was comfortable with that, confident. Here was an actress. She played it so straight and so honest. Carrie owned it. Now... Eventually, Carrie goes to the Central School of Speech and Drama in London, and she does get a little boyfriend there. She's kind of hiding out in London while Shampoo is released. It, it eventually becomes a huge hit, so she kind of likes this little bit of anonymity, uh, whatever, being sort of unknown in London. <laughs> <laughs> she does eventually return to LA to audition for a movie called Carrie, which we all know eventually goes to Sissy Spacek. But the trip back wasn't a total bus. While she's auditioning there, another director is in the room named George Lucas. 
He at the time is casting a sci-fi film called The Star Wars. <laughs> that was the original name. That's Isn't like, that so dorky? That's like how it used to be the Facebook. <laughs> yeah. That's like what someone on Twitter would say when they're trying to be funny. Ugh. The Star Wars, right? So he's initially resistant about Carrie because he wanted a beautiful girl, Rachel. Jesus, George. I know. Like, it's extra. Inf- I did. I have to drop the book for a second and be like, excuse me. Is <laughs> it you to judge, George? Have you looked at yourself, George <laughs> yeah. Lucas? So he agrees to see her anyway because she's, you know, Debbie Reynolds' daughter and I, whatever. She auditions with Harrison Ford. And obviously it is magic. The other actress up for the role was Amy Irving. But the thing that finally convinced George Lucas was that Carrie didn't play it as a damsel in distress. She was a fighter and she landed the part. Carrie was then instructed to lose 10 pounds. Oh, <laughs> she began training for the role. It's just so awful. Now, while they're filming this movie, at some point it's George Lucas's birthday party and the cast has like a big, the cast and crew have a big party afterwards and they all kind of are, are deciding like amongst themselves, like let's get young Carrie drunk. She's only 19 uh, when she's filming this movie. She's really young. Isn't that shocking? That is really shocking. I thought she was older. Just- I I mean, the thing about Carrie Fisher is like, like we've talked about, like she does carry herself like someone who's wise beyond her years. Yes. So I guess, okay, that makes sense. She's 19 years that, old. Yeah. But I can't believe she was that young. Yes. Yeah. I know. It's crazy. She's amazing. So she, they're all like, let's get Carrie drunk. So Harrison Ford actually comes to her rescue, saving her from this rowdy group. I mean, she wasn't scared or anything wasn't going to happen, but it's still kind of like, come on. She's like a 19 year old year old girl alone. Like you shouldn't all be trying to get her drunk. Now that night they began their three month long affair Every Friday night, they would have a sleepover. Harrison Ford at this time is 33. So she's very self-conscious around him and wanted to be sexually sophisticated. But she had only had the one boyfriend in London. And she had lost her virginity to her best friend, Griffin Dunn, just the year before when she was 18. So her insecurity with Harrison Ford lasted her whole life. Even after she revealed the affair, she still worried about his reaction. like To how she was? Yeah. So she just had that. I mean, he is so hot. <laughs> I, I just I can totally get being like insecure. He was my fr- I think he was my first celebrity crush. I mean, I like when I look, <laughs> I've seen the Indiana Jones movies like a hundred times, and every time I watch it, I still get that feeling that I did when I was a little kid where I was like, I am so horny right now. Yeah. He is so hot. When I see those pictures of him as like a handyman. Oh. <laughs> In like LA before he was super famous. It's like incredible. Yeah. So of course, Mark Hamill was also madly in love with Carrie, but she didn't have any interest. In it. <laughs> I don't Aww. know why that seemed like the most Mark Hamill story uh, or Luke Skywalker, like the whole triangle. Now, for like an early movie viewing, she took her friend Griffin Dunn. She warned him going in. She's like, this movie is so fucking dumb. Like oh, that whole thing. She's that- like, she's like, oh, I don't even know why we have to go. But as soon as it ended, he said he was like, uh, <laughs> your life as you know it is over forever. You are fucking famous. Like this movie is going to be a huge hit. And obviously he was right. She was more than just mega famous though. She became like the first feminist action hero because she was like equal to the guys. She was not just this damsel in distress. And I feel like that was part of the appeal of Princess Leah. Leia. Leia, sorry. It Desi, was also, we don't want emails. Seriously, do not email about any nerd shit. <laughs> 
ever. It was also during this period period that she really began cultivating this kind of Dorothy Parker uh, writer persona in interviews. She wasn't the typical ingenue. She was like a real a real wisecracker in these interviews, making like witty little uh, things, and people loved her. Now, at this point, she moves to New York City, and she is really starting to become her mom's caretaker even more. Debbie is drinking a lot at this at this time. In fact, Carrie used to have to go to her apartment and pick her up off the floor and put her in bed because she would just pass out like wherever she was. One longtime friend actually speculates that the reason Carrie avoided alcohol was so she wouldn't be like Debbie. And if had Debbie had been a drug addict, Carrie probably would have avoided that too. So she didn't really drink a lot, but obviously, you know, that adds to any uh, drug use probably after a wine or something. But yeah, she never really had a problem with alcohol. It was always drugs. Like. Yeah. Now, in the late 70s, she began to hang around the SNL cast and developed a close friendship with John Belushi in 1977. It's speculated that she began to use Percodan around this time, which is an opioid. In January of 1978, she returns to L.A. and she announces to friends that she now has a boyfriend who is just barely taller than her. That man was her childhood crush, Paul Simon. Oh. I read this funny anecdote in the story where she would like always tease him about how short he was. And she would say things to him like, don't stand next to me at the party. People will think we're a salt and pepper shaker. <laughs> I don't even know what that means necessarily, but it sounded really funny to me. Uh, now, there was only one problem with her new boyfriend. He was dating actress Shelley Duvall. <laughs> so she and him are kind of smitten with each other. They all go out to dinner with Robert Altman, Richard Dreyfus, who she's very good friends with, and Paul and Carrie are there. And they're like, they're talking to each other the whole time at this group dinner. Uh-oh. And like the girlfriend is sitting there too. And it's a very clear actress, Shelly Duvall. (laughs) Hello. I would feel that look. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) nothing would hurt me more than if I accidentally hurt Shelly Duvall's feelings. How do you? (laughs) That was so awful. I could never hurt her feelings. So Shelly eventually leaves to go film The Shining and that's when Paul and Carrie's romance really blossom. They had a lot in common, including their love of cocaine. She starts spending all of her time at Simon's Central Park West apartment, and he adds a new drug to her repertoire, Percocet. Now, Lorne Michaels is Paul's next-door neighbor. I've been obsessed with this detail for a long time. They have a connecting door to each other's apartment, and they have that to this day. (laughs) Wait, they still live there? Yes. Lauren Michaels lives in the same place he lived in this. Well, it was like a Central Park West huge apartment, like in one of those like Dakota-type buildings. Holy shit. And I think they still both have those apartments. Is the Um, door locked? I've heard that they leave it open sometimes. That's weird. It's very weird. Now, Carrie clearly at this point is really suffering from bipolar disorder too. Um, So back then it's called manic depression still, but she was not diagnosed with it yet. Um, A lot of her drug use at this time is clearly self-medication, which is a very common thing for people to do um, to calm down their mania. So she's a lot of the drugs she's taking is to calm down her mania and to let her sleep, that kind of stuff. At the end of 1978, she hosts SNL and struck up a friendship with Dan Aykroyd, so much so that his girlfriend at the time, who was an SNL writer named Rosie Schuster, took note of it. She said she saw Carrie go into his office for hours with the door shut one time Uh and was kind of like, am I being paranoid? I'm just being paranoid, right? 
Uh, but later she'd find out that her paranoia was justified. Do you think they fucked while he was dressed up like the, co- <laughs> like the cone head? Yeah, she sat on his cone. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. It's like the ultimate butt plug. The like cone? A, yeah. The cone head? That's a, yeah. that's a wide girth. You got to work your way in. <laughs> <laughs> you start with just a little tip. <laughs> he was like, I want to touch your bassomatic. <laughs> <laughs> now, her relationship with Paul Simon was also full of insecurity, but unlike with Harrison Ford, which was more about physical looks, this was definitely more insecure based on not feeling as smart, as sophisticated as him, because he's also 15 years older than her, as well as all of his friends. So she's like hanging out with Steve Martin and like whatever, all of these Lauren Michaels who are all these, you know, wealthy older people. And she feels like she can't keep up with them, even though I'm sure she did fine. Now she eventually films Empire Strikes Back. And during that filming, she agrees to appear in her friend, John Belushi's next movie, the blues brothers, which also stars Dan Aykroyd. John really wanted them to hook up. Dan was now single and Carrie and Paul were in a fight stage over their relationship. They were on a break. So John, this is John's way (laughs) of hooking them up. He invites them both over and then at some point he passes out so they would be alone. (laughs) (laughs) That is the most John Belushi move. That was like his blind date. Now they become super close and they basically drop acid together one day on a trip and get engaged, but it never goes further than that. Aykroyd and Carrie Fisher. Wow. So Carrie at this point was pretty bad. Uh, She was often incoherent. She was always wasted. And most people at the time would have bet that she would have died before Belushi. That's how bad she was at this time. In 1981, she's in a movie called Under the Rainbow. (laughs) Now, I almost screamed when I read that in the book, because I was obsessed with this movie that no one knows of when I was a kid. Like, I think I saw it on cable and I would watch it every fucking time it was on. This movie is demented. It stars Chevy Chase and Carrie Fisher. It's set in 1938 on the eve of Hitler's invasion of Germany. Uh, Carrie plays a woman who's in charge of supervising the munchkins in the Wizard of Oz. Wait, during- what? <laughs> what? She's in charge of supervising the munchkins at a hotel in LA. Uh, so you're telling me <laughs> So you're telling me that this story is about Nazi Germany from the point of view of the land of Oz? Yes. Okay. What? It's an insane movie that I was just like I have to well, I had completely forgotten about this movie and when I read Under the Rainbow I was like she was in Under the Rainbow? Like I just have no memory but I just remember watching it a lot when I was a kid is on cable. Is it a comedy? I think it is a farcical comedy. Yes, it's a comedy. Jesus. Uh, and Chevy Chase is protecting an Austrian duke and duchess from assassination. So it's like a mixture of political and Wizard of Oz. <laughs> now, she is doing a lot of cocaine during the filming of this movie. She drops down to 95 pounds. Uh, according to her, this is the one where she went completely crazy a lot of people are partying on this movie set, so it's only making pushing Carrie further, I think. She, at the end of this movie, she overdoses on the set wow. and collapses um, and is rushed to Century City Hospital. Uh, so, yeah, she's finally, at this point, diagnosed with bipolar 2 disorder. 
But according to Carrie, she's unable to accept this diagnosis. She was pretty sure she can control herself by trying to stay off cocaine and Percodan, um, but she was still using Valium to kind of control it. So she doesn't get meds at this time for her bipolar disorder. Next up, she films Return of the Jedi, and this is the movie with the infamous chain bikini costume, which Carrie obviously hated wearing uh, and filming in, but she said the only thing that made it okay was that she got to kill Jabba the Hutt in it. She later said in an interview with Terry Gross that she didn't realize she had signed an invisible contract to stay looking exactly like that for the next 40 years, adding, I clearly broke the contract. You know that little guy that... That's like Jabba the Hutt's uh, sidekick. Yeah. The guy, the little <laughs> shit that laughs. Yeah. That's me. <laughs> In March of 1982, Carrie suffered a devastating tragedy, the death of her good friend, John Belushi, who OD'd at the Chateau Marmont. Now, this was around the same time her good friend Richard Dreyfus was arrested after crashing into a tree in Beverly Hills. He had two vials of cocaine on him and 31 Percodan. Uh, he was also bipolar and him and Carrie throughout her life would always sort of, you know, cheerlead each other with fighting this uh disease. Uh, Carrie really recognized herself in Richard when she found out what had happened to him, but she still felt like she could deal with her demons on her own. Now, her on-again, off-again relationship with Paul Simon was finally on again in a major way. The pair finally decided to get hitched in 1983. When he was 41, she was 26. When she told her dad, he said, you have a great ass. You should be marrying me. (gasps) She said, thank you, and later dismissed it because he was high and just trying to make conversation. Eddie said that? Yes. She defends her dad a lot, but hates him at the same time. It's like one of those. Next up, she films a movie called Garbo Talks, and that was like a higher-end movie for her. She was like feeling like she had just done a lot of fucking shit. Like, obviously, Under the Rainbow was a disaster. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So, yeah, this was like a big thing for her. But during, shortly after the filming of that, she had an atopic pregnancy that led to her being hospitalized for two weeks. Paul was very cold and not there for her at all. Oh, my God. So this was when Carrie knew the marriage was over. But Carrie had another dilemma to deal with, the impending marriage of her mother to a man named Richard Hamlet. She had her her suspicions, which were based mostly off her mom's history of having really bad taste in men. But she had to go to London for a few days for something before her mom was getting married. And when Debbie didn't hear from her, like when she called her one night, she panicked. She actually tried calling the hotel to go into Carrie's room, But they said, no, we can't do that. Uh, Then she called her friend, Ava Gardner, who was living in London at the time, and had Ava Gardner go to Carrie's hotel, and they let Ava Gardner in to Carrie's room, and she busted into her hotel room and found Carrie overdosed on the floor, just lying there. So then she took... Ava Gardner dragged her ass to the um, hospital. The thing I love about Ava Gardner is that she's like a really Southern tough bitch, even though she comes off as this glamour girl in all of her movie roles. Like in real life, she was like foul-mouthed and like Southern. Mm-hmm. Uh, So, yeah, I can only imagine getting busted by Ava Gardner. So Carrie does make it back in time for Debbie's wedding. Less than a few months later, 
Debbie's new husband asked her for money from her retirement fund for his investments. Uh And the cycle began again. (laughs) Now, Carrie moves back to LA in 1984, and she had the party house in Benedict Canyon. She was doing a lot of coke with her new best friend, Rick James. Sorry. Oh, that must have been so much fun. Dude, sometimes I'm like, I'm so jealous of her life, but boy, did she pick the wrong best friend. It's like, she always had a best friend. You know she what, was like- Desi? There's a, there's a saying, and that it's that, and it's very true. You can drop an alcoholic anywhere in the world, and we will find, we have like spidey senses. We find all the other alcoholics. Uh, So, yeah, I would love to have gone to one of these Benedict Canyon parties. They sound amazing. She gets her next big role in Hannah and Her Sisters. But this also, there was a lot of mixed stories. According to Carrie, like there was like no reshoots and she only had one scene cut. But according to other people, a lot of stuff got cut because Carrie was just not at the top of her game. And she was often too drugged out during a lot of the shoot. So... I mean, it's interesting because Carrie said it was so great, but then she's also very insecure about Woody Allen hating her. Not that I care about him, but like, so obviously there was something inside of her that knew it didn't go as well as she thought. Um, But it was her favorite role, according to her. In the spring of 1985, a friend went to Carrie's LA home and found her barely conscious. She called Dr. David Kipper, who told her to rush Carrie to Cedars and slap her the whole way to keep her from going fully asleep. They met up in a secret Cedars room, and it was there that this woman, who was not even a medical person, helped the doctor pump Carrie's uh, stomach. And this woman describes it as Carrie just literally vomiting up so much stuff, but they didn't know what she had ingested. Now, she's then secretly transferred to a Century City hospital that had like a rehab floor. And for Carrie, she says that this was her rock bottom. This moment would later be the basis for her debut novel, Postcards from the Edge, which is loosely based on her real life and her relationship with her mom. Now, at the age of 28, she's now sober and she's finally treating her bipolar disorder. She also started working on her book, Postcards from the Edge, and was trying to rebuild her reputation in Hollywood. Carrie opens the book with the line, maybe I shouldn't have given the guy who pumped my stomach my phone number, but who cares? And then she ended it with a letter to that same doctor concluding with that night in the emergency room. Do you recall if I threw up something I needed? I distinctly feel as though I'm missing something pause, but then I always have. Uh, now when the book comes out in August of 1987, it's an immediate bestseller and Carrie is finally a star for something that she really has her heart in. Like, as I mentioned earlier, she always thought of herself as a writer uh, so this is very satisfying for her. Um, she's also getting a well-earned reputation once again as being like an even greater interview because now she's really going on these shows to talk about her book, which is her life. So she's kind of become known for being balls deep when it comes to honesty. Like she is just super honest and that's just obviously incredibly appealing. Mike Nichols options the book to make into a movie and he hires Carrie to write the script. Things get even better when she lands a role in When Harry Met Sally. In 1989, she writes a second book called Surrender the Pink, which is loosely based on her relationship with Paul Simon, who she's still fucking around with five years after divorce and while he's already seeing Edie Bracal. Oh. So they're like cheating on Edie in the early stages. Now, Carrie is um, really reveling in her life as a writer and as someone who threw the best Hollywood parties. 
they talk about the parties in the book. <laughs> so she has like people like Liz Taylor and then like one party, all of the traveling Wilburys showed up <laughs> in sunglasses. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was just like dying. I was like, I would literally drop dead on the spot if the traveling Wilburys walked in. And in 1995, like post OJ, Marsha Clark and Chris Darden were at one of her parties. Like she just had Whoa. like everyone who was like in the news at the time was like at her parties. In 1990, Postcards from the Edge, the movie is released, and that's also a hit. The biggest change from the novel is that the movie really honed in on like the mother-daughter competitive relationship. Now, at this point, she becomes one of Hollywood's most in-demand script doctors, punching up dialogue for movies like Hook, Sister Act, and Lethal Weapon 3. Her love life also was thriving. In 1991, she began a romance with CAA agent Brian Lord, who she described as kind and nurturing, smart and funny, and he was four years younger than Carrie. Now, this is definitely when I was reading about her relationship with Brian. It was like the person who kind of always picks the wrong people and then meets a really nice guy but has a lot of trouble accepting him early on but then finally falls in love with him. Now, by the end of the year, Carrie is pregnant, and on July 17th, 1992, she gives birth to their daughter, Billy Lord. Everything was pure bliss for the family until late 1993 when Brian told Carrie that he was gay and was leaving her for a man. Now, Carrie entered a deep depression after he left her. She was just like her friends were severely worried about her. She says in her book, Shockaholic, when I love, I love for miles and miles, a love so big it should either be outlawed or it should give, should have a capital and its own currency. Now, obviously, she accepted that he was gay, but it still was sort of personally uh, devastating to her. Um, and she couldn't help but like still blame herself or feel guiltier that she had done something, even though she knew like in her mind that it was just what it was. At the time, Debbie is getting divorced from her husband, who once again had left her bankrupt. Oh so God. this guy left her bankrupt. So she kind of throws herself into fixing her mom instead of dealing with the emotions she has about her marriage ending. Actually, they never were married, but it, she always describes him as her husband. Now, Carrie, the first thing she does to help Debbie, she gets her cast in the Albert Brooks movie, Mother, which is her first major role in 20 years. Did you see that movie? I remember that movie. Yeah, that's a, I thought that was a funny movie. Now, Debbie also moves next door to Carrie, and they really begin to repair their relationship, even though it's kind of in a weird way. At the same time, Eddie publishes his second memoir, Been There, Done That, which was really <laughs> brutal towards Debbie. Uh, he talked about how much he had always disliked Debbie during their marriage. He um, really, he called Debbie, a, he called Debbie a lesbian. Uh, he said Carrie had coddled her, coddled him. Um, so Carrie said in an interview after this like memoir that basically p- took her mom down and like fucking beat the shit out of her, I'm having my DNA fumigated, fumigated. So Another thing she did for her mom is she wrote a TV movie tribute to Debbie and to Elizabeth Taylor called These Old Broads. Now, this was about four studio system actresses. It also starred, um, fuck, what's her name? Shirley MacLaine and Joan Collins. In her memoir, she said that on the set one day, Elizabeth Taylor formally apologized to Debbie for taking Eddie from her and that I saw my mom following Elizabeth out of the trailer that day with tears in her eyes. Debbie had, of course, forgiven Elizabeth years earlier, but it was like this moment where they kind of officially did it. Another interesting thing was shortly after this, in uh, 
both Elizabeth and Debbie were in New York in September of 2001 for Michael Jackson's performance at Madison Square Garden. They were staying in the same hotel um, when September 11th, the morning of September 11th. I remember that. Debbie woke up smelling smoke and she went up to Elizabeth's suite at the Pierre Hotel and they were together that day. That was kind of like a weird thing. Yeah. Um, so now for Carrie, being a good mom is like her most important job. Like she's very dedicated to her daughter. Billy, her daughter, said that when she was nine, just as an example of her mom, I was in trouble in school for stealing something out of someone's backpack. She picked me up from school and she sat me down in the car and she turned to me and says, she said, are you going to grow up to be an asshole? <laughs> And I started to cry. The blunt words stay with me to this day. I always think that now. I don't want to grow up to be an asshole. <laughs> I really love that. It's so perfect. Now, Carrie, as I said, is de- desperate to stay sober. She's on her meds for the sake of Billy. She joined something called the Pacific Group. Have you heard of this? Oh, yes. Okay. I'd be curious to hear what your thoughts are. So this is like an offshoot of AA or it's, is it officially? It's it, it's a... It's a meeting in Los Angeles. Look, it's a very hardcore version of it's. That's what I have. I'll tell you more about it. I'll tell you more about it. Okay. So later. Basically, what I read is that it's for the like hardcore addicts. No, no, no. (laughs) It's not for the hardcore addicts. It's just their approach is very different than what you would get at a typical AA meeting. It's sort of like. They're very, they have this huge meeting on Wednesday nights in Brentwood and it's like a fucking thousand people. Like it's the biggest meeting in the country and like it's just very, they all hang out together and they all are like, you know, the guys wear a tie at the meeting. It's unlike any other. Right. It's so not like. It did say that she used to go to the West Hollywood one. Um, or some West Hollywood the meeting. The Log Cabin. Uh, I don't remember what it We was should called. have this conversation off the air. Yeah. Well, this was in the book. So now, and then she moved to the specific net one, Pacific group. Now, in the book, I have no idea how much of this is true or not, so you can correct whatever it is. So this is what the woman says in the book. She said, like, back in the 70s and 80s, there was some resistance in AA for people who were treating mental illness with certain medications. That's a Pacific Group thing. That's not an AA thing. Right. Okay. So, because the guy who created Pacific Group used to work at AA or whatever, I don't want to say it, and he's the one who felt that way. He didn't work, no one works at AA. He worked, he founded uh, um, the Midnight Mission in downtown. Um, but or they something. they switched that uh, obviously at some point because I don't know if the Pacific Group ever did. Well, she was maybe they gave uh, her allowance to treat her mental illness, but I'm sure it fucked her up about whether or not she was allowed to take medications. That seems like a pretty uh, uh, dangerous position to have. Don't uh, you think? I completely agree and because a lot of people who have bipolar have a co-diagnosis of some kind dual of addiction. Diagnosis. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I've, I've, look, just from my own personal experience, nobody has ever told me to not take meds. Taking meds has been encouraged because I also have mental illness. Right. So that was a pretty interesting thing. I wasn't quite sure if this woman knew a ton about it, so I didn't want to get too much into it. But I did think that was sort of interesting that she would be in a group that sort of was conflicting advice about treating her mental illness and dealing with her addiction. I would say that it's just that specific group. Right. Right. So now Carrie, 
at this time, she's also gaining a rep as someone who will help anyone out if they are going through anything that she has gone through. If someone she doesn't even know if some famous person is going through a divorce, she'll like call them and be like, I've gone through a divorce. Like that's her nature. She stands up for her friends in very Carrie Fisher ways. One of the most Carrie Fisher ways probably was when her friend Heather Ross was told by a producer he she would never make a movie in town if she resisted his advances. Carrie sent that guy a Tiffany gift wrap box containing a cow's tongue with a note attached. If you ever touch my darling Heather or any woman again, the next delivery will be something of yours in a much smaller box. Wow. So she's like hard. She goes hard for her friends or even anyone she feels like is being wrong. But... She's really struggling struggling with her um, bipolar meds. She will go off them and on them and take and people can tell uh, very clearly when she's going off of them. She'll want to have like an eight hour conversation on the phone and things like that. So people also believe that she's possibly on drugs again. Uh, as well. Now, in the 2000s, she comes out in a major way publicly declaring her struggles with bipolar disorder. Um, she says she does a sit down interview with Diane Sawyer where she like lays it all out. She's on the cover of psychology today talking about it. I mean, it might see like something that we hear a lot now, but this was a big deal when this happened in 2000 stars were not talking about this stuff. In fact, just a few years before that, um, Margot Kidder had a bipolar like breakdown was found like wandering in Venice and people mocked her. It's awful. Uh, and so just this few years later, she came out declaring this, you know, openly. So there was an interesting insight about um, how women are treated a little bit differently than men. <laughs> like they, someone, this woman brought up like how Anthony Bourdain was treated after his suicide and Kate Spade. A lot of people were like, oh, her poor daughter. Like it's sort of like women have a different, like, are, are treated a little bit differently when they talk about their mental illness. And I think Carrie Fisher helped a lot in that kind of stuff. The thing I liked about, the thing I always liked about Carrie Fisher, the way she approached talking about it is that she wasn't, she was just so honest. She was so brutally honest and she said all of the ugly things about it and all the real things about it. Right. And she just, she wasn't ashamed of it either. No. She, it was part of her life. Right. It wasn't her fault. It's an illness. Yeah, it's an illness. So her next book, The Best Awful, is about her struggle with bipolar disorder. Um, She goes on a book tour for this, and people really come out to see Carrie for this book because it's a lot of people who have never been able to talk about their own struggles with mental illness, you know, every kind of mental illness. So they go to these book tours to fucking talk to her for the first time and tell tell someone. So it's like this very cathartic book tour. But Carrie's life once again takes a dramatic turn in a devastating way. In February of 2005, right before the Oscar ceremony, a longtime friend of hers named Greg Steven, who is also an addict, and they met in a weird way. He's like a Republican lobbyist, but they become weird friends because they're both <laughs> drug addicts. That's like their bonding thing. He comes to stay with her. According to her brother, Todd, they were snorting OxyContin the night he arrived. The next morning, he was dead. It was found that he had cocaine and OxyContin in his system, but he had also had an undiagnosed heart disease. So he was also an addict for many years, so he just was in bad shape. But the the headlines were basically guy dies in Carrie Fisher's home of a drug overdose. Like They didn't get into the, all, all the other details. Now, obviously, she's devastated and felt responsible for his death. And this lot led into um, a very severe OxyContin addiction for Carrie. 
but she is still working. Now she is working on a one-woman show called Wishful Drinking, um, and it was a smash hit. It sold out its two-month engagement at the Geffen Theater. In 2009, it opens on Broadway. She does like a tour of the country, including um, a performance at the Berkeley Rep. Carrie is once again off her meds and careens into another um, manic episode during this period. This leads to her ex-husband or the father getting full custody of her daughter. And Carrie says that for the first time, she truly understood what it meant to be heartbroken. Friends were worried because Carrie would say things like, I'm not depressed, I'm defeated. She was she was just in a bad way at this point. She finally agreed to have electroconvulsion therapy to treat her bipolar disorder. She describes this period after Greg Stevens' death and with Billy losing Billy as having been a psychotic break. Now, the electrotherapy goes pretty well. Like it does help her. And in 2010, Carrie decides to become a Jenny Craig spokesperson to deal with the weight she had gained from her medication. And as she put it, her love of Mexican and Southern food. But as usual, Carrie suffers some setbacks. Her dad, Eddie Fisher, dies um, September 2010. And a young actress who was struggling with sobriety, who was living in Carrie's guest house for a time, dies of an overdose. Her name oh. is Amy uh, Brilli- Brilliant. Now, in 2011, she's out signing books of Shockaholic. While signing autographs at a book signing, she is served with papers. She is a co-defendant in a wrongful death suit filed by the mother of the actress who OD'd, uh, the one who stayed at her guest house. Now, after the um, book signing event, she was found in the back room, rocking back and forth, sucking her thumb in complete anguish. Soon after, she got a French bulldog named Gary Fisher. <laughs> Look, I know all about this dog. This dog, Carrie Fisher's dog, has the exact same name as my father. So I know all about this dog. Now, Carrie Fisher is her emotional support. <laughs> you know what? I think my dad commented on her Instagram once, like, great name or something. Oh, really? That's yeah. hilarious. Well, she's, like, very into this dog. Well, how do you name a dog? And it's not like she just named the dog... Gary? No, it's called Gary Fisher. I was like laughing my ass off every time they said the name because I was like, Gary Fisher. (laughs) Oh my God. Now in 2013, like the court, the the lawsuit, like it starts kind of like happening. It's not necessarily a trial yet, but it's sort of stop uh, starting up. The gist of the lawsuit is that Amy was under the care of an unconventional interventionist named Warren Boyd, who would pay Carrie to let his clients stay at her guest house. Now, Carrie seems to have no idea of what was actually going on in this guest house, but there were lots of allegations, including that drugs were found in her and they would be covered up instead of reporting it. And that Amy had been trading sex for drugs in the um, guest room. Obviously it's all very scary to be involved in something like this. Even if it was very unlikely she would ever be found responsible. It's not a great thing for her to go, go through now to get her mind off of all of her troubles. She gets booked on a gay cruise as a celebrity guest and she's a hot mess on this cruise. <laughs> Although it sounds, it does sound kind of fun. Now she's performing on this cruise. I'm not quite sure what her deal was, but she does some performing and just kind of being there was like I'm part sure of the they sale. loved it. Yeah. So she's slurring and incoherent at times. During one performance, Gary Fisher says shit, shit on the rug. Sorry. <laughs> 
and she had to clean the shit up while she was singing. I'm sorry. That's honestly iconic. Yeah. So she's singing Bridge Over the Troubled Water <laughs> while her dog is shitting on the rug and she's like singing and cleaning it up. Now she could barely get through this performance. I can barely get through saying this performance. Um, unfortunately, this was her first really big breakdown in the social media age. So this was very public. The video, there was a video of this and it went viral. I mean, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I, I didn't mean, get a chance that to is it. a great camp performance. It sounds incredible. Like I could picture it, the fucking dog just shitting on the While rug. While you're singing Bridge yeah. Over Troubled Water. Yeah. So mm. now Carrie is admitted for psychiatric care when she gets back from this. 2014 starts off rocky. There's paparazzi that catch her going to an apartment all the time. So people are like, what's she going to this skanky apartment for all the time? Obviously, they speculate that she's purchasing drugs. Although, wouldn't she just be able to get drugs delivered to her? She's like a star. Um, She starts filming Star Wars The Force Awakens as General Leia. And that kind of pulls her above water again. She has another unexpected career success when she gets a role on the Hulu show Catastrophe. As Debbie's health begins to decline, Carrie thought that they should pitch a documentary on their mother-daughter relationship. That's picked up for, by HBO and is called Bright Lights. To be honest, I have not been... I remember this came out after they both died and I was like, I'm not emotionally stable enough to handle this. Yeah. And I just never have felt like, I, I feel like every time I think of watching it, I'm like, I don't know if this seems really sad. I can't deal I, with it. I feel the exact same way. Like I've never been in the right mood. Same. Yeah. Well, I'm it, sure it came great. out in like 2016. So it's like the last four years. I've just not been in the mood. Like I don't need to go there yet, but I feel like I will watch it at some, at some point. Now, when she gets back into the Star Wars world, obviously she is being monitored and criticized on social media because now all that nerd shit on social media is to like a fucking 11. Mm -hmm. It's impossible. She's being fat shamed. She's being age shamed. I remember the fat shaming and this was just fucking infuriating. Well, because she's being compared to when she was fucking 21 years old and now she's in her 50s. Like, it's just an insane comparison. It was just... Oh, it was so infuriating. So she would kind of like try to preempt the dissing by men. She'd be like, Carrie Fisher is this angry, loud mouth, fat woman now. Like, that's something she would tweet. So she would like do these tweets. Uh, She said that she would... To research the role, she had to talk to her younger self, who was very busy partying and making sure that I looked terrible later on. Uh, She made a lot of um, feminist statements, though, at this time as well. She said, I think it's a stupid conversation. The obsession with my weight and aging, youth and beauty are not accomplishments. They're temporary, happy byproducts of of time or DNA. Uh, She told Good Housekeeping that they wanted her to lose 35 pounds before filming. They didn't want to hire all of me. They only wanted to hire about three quarters. Now she added other layers about men. She said, men don't age better than women. They're just allowed to age. I'm a female in Hollywood over the age of, let's say, 40. We could all say, say 50. You don't have to ask if you want to work at that age. There just are not a lot of choices for women past 27. Now, in November of 2016, in an interview with Terry Gross, Carrie describes 2016 as a year from hell, mostly due to Debbie's failing health, which has included two strokes in the past year. But the year was not over. She's touring now with her latest book, The Princess Diarist, which is about when she was 19 and details her affair with Harrison Ford. That didn't come out till that book, like... 
That was a secret. Do you remember when that came mm-hmm, out that she mm-hmm. fucked him? So she's in London that December. After finishing her book tour in London, she gets on a commercial flight on December 23rd, 2016, back to LA. She has two small incidents of sleep apnea during the flight, 15 minutes from the scheduled landing. Carrie then starts vomiting uncontrollably and goes into severe cardiac arrest. The pilot radios ahead to emergency services, so when the plane lands, she's met by uh, an ambulance and taken directly to UCLA Medical Center's intensive care unit. Her brother, her mother, her daughter all rush to the hospital, and they tell the Associated Press that Carrie is receiving excellent care and in stable condition. They're hoping for the best, but we certainly do not know her condition. That's why she's in ICU, so no time for speculation. That's basically what they say. Now, Carrie is in ICU for three and a half days. On Christmas Day, Debbie tweets, Carrie is in stable condition. If there's a change, we will share it. For all her fans and friends, I thank you for your prayers and good wishes. Many at this point suspect that this is all a formality and that Carrie is just being kept um, alive on life support. On the morning of December 27th, her family announces that Carrie has died. The official cause of death was heart attack, but no toxicology reports were immediate at that point. Um, Debbie had braced herself for the news of her daughter's fatal overdose for four deca- decades, basically. Um, but they had gotten particularly close over the last year and a half. So the loss for Debbie was very profound. Todd would later say that the night that Carrie died, he spoke to his mother. She was setting me up for leaving the planet is how he put it. Debbie told Todd that she wanted her own funeral plans changed from a low-key cremation to burial with Carrie. She was asking my permission to go, Todd said. She literally looked at me and said, I want to be with Carrie and closed her eyes and went to sleep. Now, the next day, December 28th, Debbie suffered a fatal stroke. On January 5th, 2017, a joint private memorial was held for Debbie Reynolds and Carrie Fisher. Carrie was cremated while her mother was entombed. A portion of Carrie's ashes were laid to rest with Debbie Reynolds in her crypt. The remainder of her ashes was held in a giant novelty Prozac pill. Now, we do get a toxicology report in June of 19th of 2017 that states that Fisher did have cocaine in her system as well as traces of heroin, other opiates, and MDMA. They also report that the cocaine was taken within the past 72 hours before she died, but the investigation was was unable to determine when the other drugs were taken or how they contributed to her death. Todd Fisher, you know, was not surprised by the the drug use, and Billy Lord was also sort of forthright about the results of this toxicology uh, report. She released a statement that said, my mom battled drug addiction and mental illness her entire life. She ultimately died of it. She was purposefully open in all of her work about the social stigmas surrounding these diseases. She talked about the shame that torments people and their families confronted by these diseases. I know my mom. She'd want her death to encourage people to be open about their struggles, seek help, fight for government funding for mental health programs. Shame and those social stigmas are the enemies of progress to solutions and ultimately a cure. Love you, Mombi. So that was pretty sweet. Um, <laughs> that got me emotional. So The Last Jedi was released a year later, and that's her final performance. Now, in a book called Trainwreck, The Women We Love to Hate, Mock, and Fear, and Why, 
It says this about Carrie. Carrie Fisher would have made things easy on herself, but that wasn't Fisher's style. In fact, she refused to fit any of the stereotypical limiting roles that the world tried to force upon her. Hollywood heiress, bimbo in a bikini, drug-addled train wreck, crazy showbiz reject, washed-up old lady. She managed to reclaim her own narrative by relentlessly confronting the world with the spectacle of her human complexity, by peeling back the edifice of her glamour and, and insisting we meet the messy, funny, flawed woman underneath. Carrie Fisher became her own legend. So that's the story. <laughs> oh, Des. That's so sad. Desi's crying. <laughs> I forgot how sad her death was. I remember that when it happened. It was during Christmas. And then her mom died literally the next day. Okay. Can I just tell you a very petty story to hopefully take us from the sadness? Okay. We can't even have like one <laughs> moment. <laughs> Of reverence for Carrie Fisher. But Carrie Fisher would like this. Okay. When her mom died, I tweeted something like, if you are a fan of Postcards from the Edge, you have to kind of appreciate that Debbie Reynolds one-upped her daughter. <laughs> and it went really viral because Patton Oswalt like, quote tweeted it. Yeah. But then all the, there was articles written about it, but the articles all had headlines <laughs> that were like, Patton Oswalt says it perfectly. Oh my <laughs> God. It's my tweet. I tweeted it. He was just like, this is perfect or something like that. So there's like Huffington Post articles written about it. It was, I mean, it was definitely funny. I don't really care, but it was just kind of like, and now I'm getting one up. (laughs) I was like, I guess it's kind of perfect. (laughs) That is funny. Um, So yeah, it was, it's awful. I like her. Yeah. It sucks when someone cool dies like that. She's only she, 60, so. Yeah, she was really a cool lady. Um, wow, Desi, that was a long episode. Oh, good for you. Sorry. I know, <laughs> no, I mean in a good way because I know you like worked your ass off this weekend week yeah. finishing it. So, so our, I'm sure we'll have lots of good pictures because there's just oh, so many good ones. Of course, we'll so have we'll pictures. we'll post that. And then I don't know what I'm going to do for Thursday. Oh, maybe I'll do Thanksgiving Related well, stuff. we have a Thanksgiving special coming out. Yeah, on this, Thanksgiving or the next day. You guys will get it on Friday, but we are going to be recording from our food comas. It's gonna yeah. be it's gonna be interesting. Desi might be a little drunk. That's possible. Desi and Brendan <laughs> might make an appearance. <laughs> I know you. I, we got lots of great feedback on that mini episode with Brendan. Right, and we'll. Uh, yeah, I think it'll be a fun episode. The cats might make an appearance. Who knows? It's going to be, I mean, anything can happen. God bless you. Jesus, Did you guys hear that? <laughs> Did any, everyone hear Brendan sneeze from the other room? We're going to say that and no one heard it. Yeah. <laughs> it was a loud sneeze. It seemed pretty loud. That was a violent sneeze. Yes, very violent. Okay. All um, right, guys. We'll see you guys on Friday. Bye. Bye.